One of my favorite British traits is our stoicism. I love that we are, we are a stoic bunch. We are, we are a bunch of people that, that and I've, I've been trying to think of a few adjectives, that we, that we are people that can sort of get through it. We have this theme, don't we? Is it a theme? A, a phrase that's kind of captured our country, and the tea towels are everywhere that say, keep calm and carry on. Have you seen the tea towels that say, keep calm? It's a big part of our mantra, isn't it? If you're watching any... Um, I went to watch Dunkirk the other week. Has anyone seen Dunkirk? Or any, any of these films of this ilk? Is that one nod? If you've, not, if you've not seen Dunkirk, really, you need to go see it. It is just it's incredible. If, you're, if you've got high blood pressure or something like that, it might not be the film for you, but it's, just, it's such a challenging film. But often, as, as, I, watch, as I watch these British films, one of the things that comes, comes across, I guess when you, sometimes, I don't want to just jump on the Americans, but sometimes you watch an American film and it's almost like they win the war by being really good looking, or by having amazing bombs, or just this awesome strategy, or just one dude, and the, the British war films are often won by this kind of stoicism, this kind of inner courage, do you know what I mean? If you, if you watch Dunkirk, you'll see this, this is the way that the story manifests, the British triumph in the end because they are willing just to keep calm and carry on. There's this brilliant scene, I don't want to give the film away, where the RAF pilots, one of the, they're flying along in this plane and one of the pilots goes down and smashes into the sea and there's just kind of a raised eyebrow. That's, that's kind of the British mentality that we've got. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment by Jeremy Paxman. I'm realizing I'm coming across incredibly dull in this first. I'm going to really work hard to lift the expectations. Jeremy Paxman, a book called The English... I'm not going to say, is anybody, is anybody reading this book? But he's got a chapter devoted to stoicism. And he's, he recalls a story of a, of, a, of a returning war hero who, who comes back. And, he's, and, and the story sort of goes, there's, there's the father at the, at the station. And he's just passing the time of day talking about the weather. But he knows that the son that's coming back has lost an arm and a leg and half of his face. This is, a, this is a true story, a recounted story, and he meets him off the train. It's really odd, and there's just this handshake, and he says, hello, son, and the son says, hello, dad, and I'm reading that, and I'm thinking, what, what nationality am I a part of? That, that? And, and, and as, as you read Paxman, he kind of elevates it. He says, this is an amazing trait. This is a brilliant trait that we can kind of cope and be calm in this circumstance. And and I love it. I love that we have this capacity. And I, I was thinking about it today, I was thinking, maybe, maybe we're overthinking this. Maybe the British just think that we, we do this and nobody else in the world has this approach to life. Nobody else is stoic. Nobody else copes quietly. Nobody else contains everything. Nobody else gets through. But actually, I don't know, I think we might just be the only people who think that's an amazing thing. Maybe we don't. But I think everybody else has a bit of fun with their emotions. Do you, do you know what I mean? I think everybody else quite enjoys their emotions. They're quite free with their emotions. I, I could be wrong, and you can come to me afterwards and say, no, I am from China, Ash, and actually you're really wrong. We're very stoic too. But I think this is the reality. We are a stoic bunch, and that stoicism is, is awesome. We keep going. We carry on, but it's got its hang-ups. There is a bit of a, a trickle-down legacy through the years of time that has affected how we think and feel today. And it's kind of made us rubbish at asking for help. It's kind of made us rubbish at crying out. It's kind of made us a bit rubbish at being honest. Here's some statistics. 
getting quite into the statistics at the moment. Um, these are from the Mental Health Foundation. Make of them what you will. They are statistics. You can grab statistics to tell you all kinds of stories, but I found them quite helpful. A survey by the Mental Health Foundation found that the average adult will say, I'm fine, 14 times a week. Though just 19% really mean it. So that's, that means one-fifth a lying. Does that mean one-fifth a lying? No, that means one-fifth are telling the truth. One-fifth of people are telling the truth about that. So that means the other 80% of us lie, are lying all the time, or so these statistics say. Almost a third of those surveyed said that they often lie about how they're feeling to other people. A third of people surveyed said that they often lie about how they're feeling to other people, while one in ten went as far as to say they always lie about their emotional state. One in ten, so I don't know how many of that is of us is in here. It's quite a lot. We just permanently lie. The survey goes on. It also revealed that 59% of us expect the answer to be a lie when we ask other people how they are. So this is just this merry dance going around. Of, 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 like ask, of, of, of being able to be honest with our emotions. One of the things that has struck me as, I, as you do a bit of self-analysis, and maybe as you do a bit of people analysis, is how difficult it is for us to be really honest with exactly how we are. For us to be really honest with our emotions. There is a lot of, just thinking about the church for a second, there is a lot of I'm fine get said in church. I am, I think I have, I have survived 38 years in the church by saying I'm fine. I've said I'm fine when I've, when I've been upset all day. I've said I'm fine when my, my grand marshal passed away the day before. I've said I'm fine. I wonder, looking around church today, if you look past the eyelids of an I'm fine, I wonder what is going on in the background. I think, uh, Thinking about crying for help, I think Yorkshire people, uh, this is so we've gone from British to Yorkshire, I think Yorkshire people might be the worst people in the world for actually crying for help. I don't know what the stats are on guys going to the doctors, but I imagine that's pretty, pretty rubbish. We don't, like to, we don't like to look like we need help. We'd like to just do this keep calm and carry on. I don't know if you've, if you've seen, and I'm going to ask again, if you've seen the, you're not going to put your hands up to this one, if you've seen the full Monty, the start of the full Monty, the, it, it, yeah, you can't, you can't actually put your hands up to that in church, can you? If you've seen the full Monty, but this, it, it really captures the heart of stoic Yorkshireness and this capacity just to not be able to ask for help. This, these, these guys have lost the jobs, and there's, uh, there's two guys, and I obviously tell by the smile on my face, I quite enjoy this film, these two guys are trying to get trying to cope, trying to nick some stuff. I think that's, that's kind of the, the story because their wives are angry with them for not having jobs. It's, they're in the pits. They are absolutely desperate. They are desperate guys. And, and then they find themselves by the side of a canal and all of a sudden in the middle of Sheffield, they're cut adrift on this canal and they're floating down the canal. They're like, this is the, this is the bottom of the pit of their life. And there's a, there's a man walking with a dog coming towards them in the other way and they do the most Yorkshire thing in the world. They are desperate. They've got no, this is the bottom of their lives. This, this is the moment. If there's going to be a moment in these guys' lives when you're going to cry for help, it's right now. And what do they say? All right. And the other guy looks at him and said, that's not much of a cry for help. It's true, isn't it? How, how often do we say that? This is byword for Yorkshireness. It can mean a million different things. You say to somebody as a greeting, you all right? You say to somebody as a, I'm at the end of myself, you all right? We, we do this, don't we? We cover it up. I was in preparation for this again. I was um, I was watching an interview between 
Bono and Eugene Peterson, I think that's what he's called. And so you've heard of Bono. I don't need to give you an introduction for Bono, but Eugene Peterson sort of give us a little nod if, you've, if you're familiar with Eugene Peterson. He's, he's the guy that wrote the message. He lives, um, so he's, he's like a biblical scholar. He's always into his Bible. He's always, he's always thinking theologically. And uh, there's this lovely interview of these two guys coming together, and it's set in this, like, it's tried, they've tried to make it trendy. All the camera angles are really cool. And, uh, and they're just going back and forth about what they think of the Psalms, going back and forth about about the Psalms. I think you remember last week I told you that Bono has written an introduction to the Psalms. I don't know if you can remember that for those of you that were here last week. Probably worth a read. But they're kind of going back and forth about this. And then Bono says something just in the middle of this back and forth that kind of just, well, it annoyed me actually. And I quite like Bono, but it, it kind of stung me. He said, he said one, of the, one of the big problems with us, so he, he threw himself in it. He said, one of the big problems with us as Christians is that we're not honest. He said, we're not honest. So Eugene Peterson sort of looked across at him and he said, this is why we need the Psalms. You're all right, I'm getting somewhere. Stick with it. This is why we need the Psalms. Because the Psalms keep us honest. The Psalms show us honest, real. I wonder if you could put the, put the text up, that would be really great because you, you'll have to throw the kid off your lap. You'll get a sense of kind of the honesty and you can absorb it. The Psalms will keep us honest. One of the, as, as Bono went into this big diatribe and this big kind of a really cool letting off steam, he, he says that we're not, we're not honest as Christians about our faith because the Christian faith, the reality of the Christian faith, and in a sense it's got to be like this, it's a bit of an emotional roller coaster. We are, we are human beings with human nature, with all the, all the flaws of humanity, trying to reach out to a holy God. There's going to be moments of ecstasy, triumph, despair, tears, dark places, joy at four in the morning, peace at four in the morning, helplessness, a song in your heart you've got no idea where it's come from. Boredom, hate, bliss, fear, more tears, suffering, trials, more certainty. This is the, this is the actual Christian journey. This is what Bono is saying. Bono is saying, this is what it's like. Off, off, and he says, often Christians do this thing where they, they and he, he, he's not, and I'm realizing he's sounding like he's been judgmental, and maybe even I'm being judgmental, but that's not the truth of it. He's saying, this is what we do. This is sometimes what we do in Christian circles. We, we sort of, we see all the crazy emotions that are flying about there. We see these big fears of doubt. We see all this trouble and drama and dilemma and we try and squeeze it back into something that is, from a Christian perspective, socially acceptable. Do you do, you do this? I, I do this sometimes with my life. I, and maybe you've got to do it as a, a pastor in a church, but I'm, I'm aware of the on my Christian walk of the moments of absolute ecstasy. And I'm aware of the moments where I'm there, where I join David in this pit of despair. And I am desperate to see God. And I feel like I can't see him. I feel like he can't be there because I can't see him. And yet if you were to ask me about it in church... 
probably the most happy I would be. We do this thing that was like, I could be the happiest in the world. And I'd say, yeah, I'm all right. And if I was down in the absolute pits of despair, I'd say, well, I'm a bit under the weather. And you've got kind of like the reality of Christian life, which is like, ah, it's, you know, there's trauma, there's tears, there's angst, there's anger, there's going home and reading your Bible again, going, is this real? Have I got this right? There's, think, there's thinking thoughts through on this deep level. And then there's what it sometimes manifests itself as. As it all comes together, we kind of funnel it out. We get to church and we are, I'm fine. I'm fine. And, I'm, and, I'm, and we pray down this sort of middle road and we experience our Christian life down this sort of middle road. And Bono kind of goes, this is nuts. This is not the reality of Christian life. I want us to think just for a second about what the Psalms do. Stay with me. I want to think about what the Psalms do. A few quotes for you. We had a few of them last week, but they're really helpful in, in thinking about what, how the Psalms make it real, how the Psalms keep us honest. The first one is from, and I can't say his name, Paul can say his name, and he told me it this week. Ath- Athanasius is a theologian, about the 4th century. And this quote says, Psalms have a unique place in the Bible because whilst most of, spri- script- scripture, most of Scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. So we said this last week. Most of Scripture gives us this knowledge of God, gives us this information. And the Psalms is and you might, you might remember this, the story I told. I'm not going to run down that road again because that was four power. But this, this idea that this, the Psalms is this perfect, God-authorized blueprint for life, for our voice to him. This is a, these are the words. A few people spoke to me last week after church, and there's a sense that sometimes we recognize that we don't have the words to say to God for the, for the emotional state that we are in, whether it be at the top or whether it be at the bottom, we don't have the words. And the Psalms are this emotional blueprint. So we can say, as we said last week, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Another quote is by John Calvin. It says, the Psalms is an anatomy of the soul. What he's saying is there's, there's nothing in this book. This is what John Calvin argues. There's nothing in this book that can that we can experience in human life and not find some aid from this book of the Psalms. And uh, reading around it, what you, what you realize, there is a, there's a guy called Tim Keller who's a preacher, and I was, I was digging around at his, his practice and his lifestyle, and he says, I read the Psalms every month. Read through the Psalms every month. There's this, there's this encouragement from a, from a lot of Christian thinkers that you, we need to imbibe this language to survive. There's this encouragement in the New Testament, and it's really challenged me this week as I've been thinking through how little I know the Psalms. There's this encouragement for us to speak. Maybe, you can, maybe you're familiar with the text. To speak to each other in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Are you familiar with that text? Speak to each other in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And, and when I thought about that, I had this horrible idea that, that the elders might come around to people's houses and gather around the doorway like carol singers and sing the Lord's my shepherd all night. And I don't think anybody wants that, but I don't think that is what, I don't think that is what that encouragement, I don't think that is what we have been encouraged to do. I think we've been encouraged to think about, as you can see some of the words in this psalm, being able to talk to each other with real depth. Not shallow, trite conversation. And not just real depth about human emotion, but real depth, real theological depth. 
one or more quote, poetry is given to us precisely to deepen our affections and enrich our emotions. It is a blend of the affective, touching and feeling, and the cognitive, addressing our minds. Psalm shows us not just what it means to know about God, but what it means to experience God, what it means to be affected by God. There's this kind of coming together of worlds in the Psalms. There's this cognitive, there's the cognitive reality, this, this theologian David that, that is able to meditate on God's law and know it inside out and upside down. And then there is David, the man with the pen of Shakespeare, able to write beautiful literacy. And then there is the fact that this man who has the mind of God and the pen of Shakespeare goes and gets drunk or has an affair with a beautiful woman or kills somebody he shouldn't have killed. And these worlds comes together. And, and in this coming together, we get to see what actually being a Christian looks like. Not just what it, it should sound like, but actually how it feels. I remember when, um, when I was younger, growing, growing up through school, I went, to a very, I went to a school called St. Michael's Middle School. Very, very formal. There was those horrible shorts that you wear up to your knees at this level, and there were blazers, and it, it, it was like this, and, and the, everybody had their own desks. I don't, I don't know if they do that anymore in schools, and there were these wooden desks, and the teacher would stand at the front, and, and, you were just rec- and education was just receiving information. And I, was, I wasn't particularly smart, but I thought, well, at least I get what education is. We're just standing there to receive information. And that, that was fine. I thought, right, I've got this. I know what I need to do till I get to be about 16, and then I will leave school a well-rounded human being, a well-rounded individual. And then I was interrupted. I guess, the, I guess the powers that be realize that there's more to education than just information. They need to make you a round, well-rounded individual. individual. So I was introduced to performance arts in the first year of school. And, and I, can rem- I can remember this moment very, very vividly, very vividly. First year, and so education, I was like a robot to this point. I'm just going to sit in class. You're going to tell me stuff. I'll write it down. That's what education was, a cold robot of a child. And then I met Miss Othersall, the dance teacher, who couldn't physically keep still. That is, she was just permanently enthusiastic. And I remember very clearly the day when she said to me, Ash and Phil, so Phil was my best friend, you're going to go into partners. I want you to recreate the feeling of Christmas in the form of dance. You've got 10 minutes. And I just remember looking across to my friend Phil and thinking, feelings? Feel that I've got to express myself? I just, I can receive stuff and I can write it down. I can recite times tables. What, what is this that you're asking me to do? And Phil whispered to me, I said, let's just do a few forward rolls. I think that's what dance is. And that's, and that's what we did. We did a few forward rolls, and that was our recreation of the feeling of Christmas. And, I, and then after six weeks of, of what was absolute torture, we, met, we did drama. We had dance first, and then we did drama. And I met Mr. Clark, who found it physically impossible to not be in some sort of fantastic posture. He was, and he had beautiful curly hair, and he talked very eloquently. And he sat us down with some Shakespeare. And I, don't you remember first year of school when you read out Shakespeare? You just read it monotone, just read it boring. And he, he would do this... Big, big grand gestures, and he said, no, I need you to feel it. I need you to feel it from in here. This is a bit, what happened to me, bumping into the world of performance arts, is a bit like what the Psalms are trying to do to us. The Psalms hit us with the theology, the stuff that we sit there and we need to know, 
and they bump that into what is actual real life. And I think what Bonner was so bothered about is that they take us to a place that is real. Sometimes I feel like I look back on big swathes of my Christianity, of my faith, and I have wonderfully acted my way through it. It has been a performance. I've known what to say. And, and what, what the Psalms get to do, if you sit down and read through the Psalms, they drag you, they physically drag you, and they say, look at what it looks like. And when you read through the Psalms, you don't see just the theology. You, you look behind the eyelids of David and you see his soul preaching out. So he says, how long, O Lord? How long? John read this really well because sometimes you read scripture and you just read it monotone, but that's not the nature of this. This is a cry. This is a desperate scream. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me. Anyone ever, anyone ever screamed at God like that? Anyone ever said a prayer like that? Look on me and answer. Oh, Lord, my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. This is the, this is the book and it's a great book. And the Psalms are littered with books like this the end of the lament or in the middle of the lament but I trust in your unfailing love my heart rejoices in your salvation I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me so I've just got a couple of points about three points in fact about what the about what this psalm shows us first one sometimes sometimes the world is so black we just can't seem to see God. And one of the things that Psalm helps us do is it, it names this. And, and this is, again, thinking back to where we've been thinking about. This is not something that we talk about in church. This is not something we even try and let our minds drift to. But Psalms name it. Sometimes life is so grim and so black and so desperate. Our, 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 our faith has been interrupted by sin. Or we're just in a depressed place and we just can't see God. And one thing I've learned about being a, a parent is that when your children ask how long, you know they're not having a good time. You might have been saying that tonight and I'm realizing I'm looking at the clock and in some respects I've messed up the sermon, but you're probably saying, how long? How long is, how long is he going to go on for? When is this going to end? And that is a real symptom of not having a great time, is it? And when David asks this, he's not... He's not actually asking God how long he's saying, I have got nothing left here. That is what he's saying. And when, and when you read through the rap sheet of where it's at, you really, it, if, if you were to do some serious study on this, you'd think this, this is clinical depression. This is maybe even somebody who sounds like this is not very far off suicide. He's at the end. He's constantly troubled. He's wrestling with his thoughts every day. His heart is in turmoil every day. And one of the things I'd like us just to consider when we think about this is, is just the place that David gets to when he's so desperate for God that he finds himself in this place. 
I've been kind of interrupted by that as I've, as I've thought about it this week. God's absence in his life breaks his heart. God not being there troubles him to the extent that he just can't cope with life anymore. And I was challenged, and I thought about this for myself, and I thought, man, sometimes in my faith journey, I don't even notice when I'm drifting away from God. I'm not even aware of how far or how near that is. David is so astutely aware, and he's so desperate and so needy of God. And what, one of the things that the psalm does is it shows us this blueprint, this perfect pattern. Here's what it's like to have tasted God and to, have not, to not be able to have him. And one of the things we've done this week is I guess we've, in the last couple of weeks, we've sort of named doubt. We've said that doubt happens sometimes in our lives. But what I wouldn't want us to do with this idea that sometimes doubt creeps in, in, into our life is just to say, right, I'm okay with that now. I don't think we're really supposed to dwell in doubts. I think we, sh- we should learn from the Psalms that David experiences these dark times and he screams and he runs back to God. He chases back after God. This is not just a meltdown. This is not just a meltdown in and of itself. This is a meltdown to God. People say to us, don't we? You need to get things off your chest. That will help you. Get, get something off your chest. And, and when you stop to think about that, you think, well, okay, so I've got this thing on my chest. Well, where am I going to put it? This thing that I've got on my chest. Who am I going to give that to? And somebody will come to you and say, well, you can talk to me about that. So you tell them your drama. You pour out like this and you give them this thing, and, and then they are burdened with it, and you've still got it actually as well. One of the things that Psalms gets us to do, one of the things that Psalms shows us, is that we are to unburden ourselves, not just to thin air, not just singing Alanis Morissette in the car, not just crying out and then having feeling better for it, but Christians are people who cry, but Christians are people who cry out to God. One of the things I noticed as I get older is that we carry stuff around, don't we? One of our habits of life, we just we carry stuff around with us. And I, I don't think that's God's plan for us. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you peace. He says, come and dump your stuff on me. And you read through the book of Psalms, and you realize that David's, David's life and other writers too are, just, are in such turmoil. But what they do over and over again is dump stuff on God and cry out to him. I wonder when was the last time that you felt this turmoil and you felt this desperate and you passed it on to God. How long will you hide your face from me? Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. To know God is to be desperate to see him. When you you read through this, one of the things you realize is that David is... David comes across like a bit of an addict. Do you see that? It's like he's got this sense of, right, I've walked with God. I know what it's like to be with him, and now I don't have him. And I guess from, in David's shoes, he's faced giants. He's walked into opposing armies, and he's said with confidence, no, we'll be all right here. God is with me. God has brought him that comfort. He's known this perfect relationship with God, and now he knows the reality of not having it, and it is tearing him apart. It kind of reminded me, as I looked at these verses, how long will you hide your face from me, give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. Just the, the pain of David not being able to see the face of God. And I, I thought, about, thought about the kind of comfort that that brings sometimes in our lives. And some of, the, some of the little kids that we've got knocking about here, 
probably under the age of about one and a half or one, you'll, you'll see them. When they lose sight of their mum, it's the terror that can appear in their face. Just, just the sheer, oh, mum's gone. I can't see. I'm not within eyeshot of mum. Where is mum? And then you bring mum just back around the corner just to, just to see the face. There's no, there's no solutions offered. There's no bottles. There's no plan of procedure or anything like that. There's just the face of the mum, and the baby just has perfect peace. You, I get this sense with David that he, he's like, I just, like an addict, I can't see God. I can't see him. I know what it's like to have him, and I'm not able to see him. I came across, um, as I was thinking of laments that would be appropriate and thinking about this kind of de- desperation. Do you remember the song from the 80s by uh, Sinead O'Connor? This is one you've got to remember. You can't look at me and say, I don't remember this. So there's the video of, of Sinead O'Connor somehow managing to look attractive with the skinhead and then the tears rolling down the face. But just as she, as she sings this lament, and I'll read it out to you in a second, what, what comes across is, and maybe all the best songwriters have an element of this, it sounds like she's tasted something perfect. She knows what it's like to have the perfect romance. She sounds like an addict, and to not have it again. It's been seven hours and 15 days since she took your love away. I go out every night and sleep all day since she took your love away. Since you've been gone, I can do whatever I want. I can see whoever I choose. I can eat my dinner in a fancy restaurant, but nothing, I said nothing can take away these blues because nothing compares to you. David has, David has got this sense throughout the psalm. We've got, we have this strong sense throughout the psalm that he knows, he's known what it's been like to walk perfectly with God, and now he doesn't have it anymore. And he's lost sight of it. As I thought through some of this, I was drawn to my, drawn back to the stories of my faith. And maybe you could think like that too. Drawn back to the stories of my faith and, and moments in my life when I have felt very close to God. Moments in my life when I have screamed out to him and I have felt him answer me. And I have felt in some sense like I've seen his face. Like when I came to faith and I had a, just this clear picture of what the cross meant for my life. I saw in Christ my sin and I saw what he'd done. And I felt so near to him. And I look back at other areas of my life. And it's almost hard to hold these things in conjecture, isn't it? In, in unison, rather. But the truth of it is sometimes we can, we can know the reality of God and what he's done. We can have, we can have an, an experience of it, and yet it can feel so distant. And sometimes, I think we need to pray with David. Can you give light to my eyes again? Could you show me this picture again because I've lost sight of it? Could you, could you show me what it means that, that I'm a sinner? Could you show me that again because I have lost sight of it? Could you show me what it means that that God's son came and died for me because I've lost sight of what that looks like. Could you show me just exactly what went on at the cross again because my eyes have gone dim. Sin's got in. I've messed things up. I've gone away from you and I've stopped being able to see you in that close way. And I, and I know that something perfect exists out there but I'm just messing it up. Can you show me that again? Sometimes... Sometimes what the Psalms help us to do is they just give us the words. Sometimes they take us to the place deep within our soul that we need to get to. And we kind of 
as you read through the words, you, you recognize that we've not felt this desperate need for the truth of the cross for a while. It's been a while since, since it's felt so real. It's been a while since my walk with God has been so close. And we've gone away from him. And sometimes you, you come into the Psalms and you're arrested and, and you see David's soul. You see, you see him pour out his soul and you see his heart and you see the place that he's in and you see the desperate state of his soul. He just needs God and you think, oh man, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm like that all the time. And you need to pray with David. Could you enlighten my eyes again? Just one more thing for us to think about. There's a, there's a great but at the end of this psalm. And it gives us hope. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. For he has been good to me. When you read through the psalm, it doesn't, that doesn't sound like the next logical step, does it? I'm pouring out my heart. Things are terrible. This is desperate. This is really awful. I'm far away from God. I don't know what's happening, but I'm going to go and sing a song. You'd probably more likely expect him to go and drown in sorrows with a glass of whiskey or something like that. But he says, but even though I've said all this, I know I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices. It seems sometimes if you were just to sit and read through the Psalms that, that these worlds can't really ever come together. Seems like sometimes David gets up in the morning and he's in the pit of despair and by the evening he's on top of the world and he knows God again or he's still in the pit but he knows God again or something like that. But why Psalms is helpful is this is sometimes the reality of our lives, isn't it? Sometimes we get up in the morning and we are in the pit of despair and we look up and we say a prayer from the end of our beds and we think that's just bounced off the ceiling, that's not gone anywhere. God seems somehow out of nowhere distant. And yet the reality is that he's still there and he's still near. And what happens in here to get David to this point? It's not what he feels, but it's what he knows God to be. He sings not because his present circumstances are good, but because God is. He sings not because of his present circumstance, but because of the ultimate security he has in God. He has this picture, he has this certainty that God's love is unfailing. He's not going to leave him, but God's salvation is complete. He's saved him. He's not going to abandon him now. He can sing to the Lord for his love, for he has been good to him. If you dig around into the, the meaning of the idea of him being good, it's this idea of this overflowing love. It's t- way more than you ever deserve. I think there's this sense for us that we sit. It's a really helpful picture, isn't it? To see someone who is in desperate times, can sing with joy because he has ultimate confidence in God's goodness for the future. What gives us a smile now? What brings us to a point of praise now? Praise is not the circumstances that we are in right now. Sometimes when I sing my praises to God, I feel like it is littered with actually, today's been a good day and it's sunny. I'm going to sing to God. David's praise is not about where he's at. He's in the worst place. But he can sing a song of joy because of what God's done. It's about who God is. I can praise you, God, because your love is unfailing. And in a sense, he looks 
to his future, which might seem immediately bleak, and he can be ridiculously confident. He can say, God has got me in his care. I know that God is good. I know that he is just. I know that he saves me, and I know that at some point down the line, I am safe in his arms. It's been interesting the last um, couple of weeks talking to Paul, who goes on sabbatical uh, very shortly, and uh, they might not be happy with me saying this, but it's, it's been interesting what, uh, talking some of this stuff through. And uh, amongst the things that we need to do is pray for him, pray for me, pray for us as a church. But it's, it's, I'm so pleased, having got to know him a bit, that he's got this chance to have a sabbatical, to rest, to have a break. And we should be encouraged as a church that our pastor gets to be restored. We need him to be restored. But it's been really funny as we've, as, as we've talked it through, that he can't physically say the word sabbatical without smiling. It's just he can't physically do it. And he's given me all sorts of reasons as to why this is. He's pretty convinced that it's to do with the sound of the words and a bunch of other, he says, oh, it's a nervous thing and all, all this sort of stuff. But I think what it is, is he takes great rest in the fact that God has provided a time of restoration for him. He can take great confidence from the fact that God has given him a bit of security in his future. What would cause us to sing in the middle of the most desperate, the worst day of our lives? What would cause us to sing then? It's to know that our future is secure and in God's hands. We can have an unlikely smile on our face because of the comfort that God brings.